and turn with me to our scripture reading. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, and we're going to begin at verse 7. Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good." So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit." if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Second part of Lord's Day 44, we dealt with question and answer 113 last week. So I will read with you now question and answers 114 and 115, where we confess the following. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. After the sermon, we will respond by singing once again from Psalm 25, and we'll sing stanzas 6, 7, 9, and 10. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we learned last week, Sunday afternoon, from question and answer 113, that the Tenth Commandment really probes the depths of our hearts. And of course, all of God's commands probe our hearts, because the overarching theme of the Ten Commandments is that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The Lord requires that of us. He requires that we serve him with complete and and faithful dedication. We confess that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. So the law is pretty straightforward, and we learned that there are no loopholes in God's law. And maybe you left the church building last Sunday thinking to yourself, well, no one can ever do this. God's requirement of perfect obedience, well, perhaps that drives us to despair. Well, brothers and sisters, that's not the answer. God's purpose is not to bring us to despair, but to bring us to himself, to draw us to him, to bring us to Christ. But then we still have question and answer 114. Can those who are converted keep these commandments perfectly? Again, the answer is no. We can't do that either. And according to the Canons of Dort, chapter 5, article 2, we read there that defects cling to even the best works of the saints. And I'd like to read that with you as well. Canons of Dort, the fifth chapter. I'll get a page number shortly. 
page 582 in the back of your book of praise. I had intended to read these first two articles already, so let's read them now. Article 1, there we confess those whom God, according to his purpose, calls into the fellowship of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and regenerates by his Holy Spirit. He certainly sets free from the dominion and slavery of sin, but not entirely in this life from the flesh and the body of sin. So that echoes what we confess in Lord's Day 44. Then Article 2, therefore daily sins of weakness spring up and defects cling to even the best works of the saints. These are for them a constant reason to humble themselves before God, to flee to the crucified Christ, to put the flesh to death more and more through the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of godliness, and to long and strive for the goal of perfection until at last delivered from this body of death, they reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. So there too we confess that We are not perfect and we cannot keep God's law perfectly. Defects cling to even the best works of the saints. Scripture says in Ecclesiastes 7, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The Apostle John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Even the holiest Christians have but a small beginning of obedience, we confess. And which one of us would dare say we belong to the group of the holiest? So what do we do with this confession? Do we, do we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, I guess that's just the way it is. Every time we, we hear another sermon on one of the Ten Commandments, we just have to conclude, well, that's all really nice and good in theory, but it doesn't work in practice. And then thinking about how you cannot keep all of God's commands. Perhaps that makes you depressed. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is not the way for a Christian to think. Because think about who it is who gives us these commandments. It's the Lord who says, I am the Lord your God. The Lord who says, I have redeemed you from sin and slavery. Never forget the preamble of the law. I am the God who offered my one and only Son, my beloved Son, so that you can become sons and daughters of God, so that you can become my children. And so I proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ with this theme, and we confess the Lord demands a pure heart. But this confession, in the first place, is not a reason for despair. Secondly, it is not an excuse to be a spiritually lazy Christian and finally it gives us every reason for eternal hope so again congregation the law is something that God gives to us because he is busy in our lives right? he is busy with us he is, he is busy sanctifying us he's busy renewing us the Lord has redeemed us from sin for a purpose and that purpose is to become image bearers of Christ so that we might increasingly become Christ like that's his purpose, that we, be, we would be imitators of Christ. And that renewal process is only possible if we, like we heard this morning, become more and more aware of our sins and of God's love. 
And then we don't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, I'm not perfect. And it means much more than just simply admitting, well, we're all sinners. That's something that is fairly easy to say. When we pray, we often have that habit of just asking God to forgive our sins. But do we really know what we're talking about when we ask God to do that? Right? We, we admit we're not perfect. We admit that we are sinners. But if someone points out one of your faults to your face, what happens? Right? The defense artillery comes out. But the Lord wants us to be honest with ourselves. He wants, to, he wants us to look our own sin in the eye. And yes, the Lord in His grace allows us to begin each day with a clean slate. But that doesn't mean that we can just simply ignore what we did yesterday. The burst of anger or our feelings of doubt or lack of enthusiasm for going to church. And it does no good to pretend that these things don't, are not part of us, that we don't have these kinds of thoughts and feelings. That's just how we are. We are that way. But we have to realize that and admit that honestly. And we may not suppress this truth. And we have to be careful how we pray about this too. Sometimes I, th- I think we're, we're a little bit quick and thoughtless in our prayers. We just tack on and forgive us our sins at the end of a prayer. And we shouldn't just say either that, my, well, my sins are between me and God. Right? If we have sinned against someone else, we ought to acknowledge that. But to really seek the Lord's forgiveness, you also have to be able to express that particularly and explicitly. You see, congregation, one of the reasons that God gives us his law so we can truly come to realize and recognize our sin. And we, we should remember then that our sins to God, our sins are like an open book. Our life is like an open book in the eyes of God. He Psalm 25, right? He knows the sins of our youth, our rebellion and transgression. And through Jeremiah the prophet, the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. So we have to be honest with ourselves too. That's what the Lord requires of us, that we confess our sins and our sinfulness, but that we are also able to articulate what those sins are. And that's why in his word, And in his law, the Lord speaks to us so emphatically and insistently about sin. His goal is to convince us of our sins. And again, we might think, well, that sounds really negative again. And we might ask, just like the catechism, well, why does the Lord have his law preached so strictly? Well, we just heard the answer to that so that we become aware of our sins, but we have to be aware that God's goal is not to preach us into despair, but to direct us to his grace and to Jesus Christ. Again, don't forget the preamble to the law. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who delivered you from slavery to sin. Right? It is the Lord himself who has redeemed you from that pit of sin. Right? We sang about that in Psalm 40. From the pit he lifted me. 
Right? First, the Lord gives you his law, or first the Lord saves you, right? and then he gives you his law. That's how he did it with the people of Israel too. He first brought them out of Egypt, then he made this covenant with them. And not to push you down, not to make you feel hopeless or fill you with despair, that's not why he redeems you. That's not why he redeemed Israel from Egypt. But he redeemed them to be a people for himself, and then he gives them his law to hold his people close, to pull them to himself. And he gives us his law to show us how much we need the blood of Christ. He gives us his law so that we would covet his love, that we would covet the forgiveness of our sins and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what we confess also in the Canons of Dort. In the second article we read, this, in this way God gives us reason to, to humble ourselves before him. In other words, he gives us his law so that we would get on our knees before him, that we would flee to the crucified Christ, that we would pray to him. And the Lord doesn't want us to suppress our knowledge of sin, He doesn't forgive and redeem us so that we can just ignore our sin and forget about it. But he wants us to come to him in the full awareness of our sins. As Paul writes in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But again, Paul shows us too, that's not a prayer that drives us away from the presence of God because in the next verse he has his answer, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, where do we go? With all of our sins, there's only one place to go, and that is the foot of the cross. Because it's only at the cross that we learn to understand the seriousness of sin, the enormous price that has been paid for our sin, the cost of our salvation, and that's why we flee to Christ with our sin. We go to the cross with our guilt and burden. And that's the only place, too, that we can find refuge and safety from our guilt and from the wrath of God because the cross of Christ is our shelter and we may leave all of our sins there. That's where we find forgiveness. That's where we find peace with God. So I hope you can see how the strict preaching of the law then brings us to that cross. That is how God brings us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's only at the cross that we understand the infinite mercy and love of God. That's where we also become thankful. And that thankfulness ought to be reflected then also in how we talk about our sins. That we don't talk about our sinfulness in a superficial way that we don't confess our sins in an abstract way, but concretely and particularly, and that we know and understand the the seriousness of our sins, that we know what it feels like to to be ashamed of those sins. And when you learn to talk about it that, that way, that means that you also find your refuge in the cross. And that's what characterizes the life of a Christian. And that makes you humble, not only before God, but also before one another. And this gives us comfort and peace. 
When you know where your refuge is found, Paul writes that first verse of Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that's where we derive our comfort from, knowing that we belong to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But then we also have to recognize that the cross is not the final point on our road to perfection. We don't stop there. Those who are converted may not continue in sin. In fact, the opposite is true. The believer must put in every effort to work out the salvation that he or she has been given. Finding our refuge in the cross does not give us an excuse to become lazy Christians. And that's our second point. Now, that doesn't mean that we should come up with all kinds of New Year's resolutions every January. It's not simply a matter of having good intentions. Is I'm going to try harder. Unbelievers can do that too. But that's, that's working it out in your own strength. Look at what we confess in answer 115. We may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image. But then don't forget the first part of that answer. That says, while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we strive to do this. Or as the Canons of Dort puts it, to put put the flesh to death more and more through the spirit of prayer. So that means that we must become very conscientious about prayer. Not just about the quality, but also the quantity of our prayers. We have the good custom of praying before our meals and often after our meals. But do we just leave it at that? It's good to pray at mealtimes. But perhaps the danger exists that we're only praying when there's food on the table. What about the rest of your day? Because prayer, brothers and sisters, is about much more than food and drink and the other necessities of life. We confess that prayer is the means by which we strive to be renewed after the image of God. So it is in prayer, too, then, that we seek and find refuge in the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is in your prayer that you find strength for the renewal that God looks for in your life. Prayer is the means by which you receive strength to fight against sin and temptation. So prayer should characterize our lives. In the middle of the afternoon when you're sitting at your desk, when you're driving the combine, washing the kitchen sink, prayer is to be part of our life. Because hating sin and fleeing unrighteousness, that's not something that that we can do in our own strength. And I'm, I'm sure I don't have to explain that to you. We know that from experience. But that's why prayer is so necessary. Prayer for the work and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And when you pray, when you pray that way, then you can also be sure that you will live in the strength of the Lord and not your own. Psalm 25 again, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And think of what Paul wrote to the Philippian church. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord doesn't abandon those whom he redeems. 
that the power of his spirit changes their hearts and lives. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that sin is increasingly put to death in us. And it is by that power that we also begin to live according to all of God's commandments. In Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote to the Roman believers, and I'm just summarizing now, when you belong to Christ, then His Spirit lives in you. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then you are alive in Him. And that didn't just count for Paul and the people he was writing to. That counts for us too. And of course it remains true that in this life we won't reach, reach perfection. That, that's evident from reading the stories about saints in the Bible too. Think of, think of David. He wrote many inspired psalms. But he was a sinner. And the Apostle Peter, he was leader of the, of the early church. But he wasn't perfect either. But, but that should never bring us to come to the conclusion, well, it, it doesn't really matter then how we live. Because God will bring us to completion anyway. You know, we're going to get to heaven even if we still sin. Which is true. But that's not the language of faith, congregation. We may not have the excuse either, well, even the holiest men in this life have but a small beginning of obedience. And I'm not really that holy, so... Yeah. And perhaps we sometimes think that, well, God will see to it that we end up in heaven just like he did with Noah and David and Peter and Abraham. And maybe you think that by God's grace everything will just turn out good in the end. It will just out, everything works out in the end. And so, so maybe you think then, well, then I can flirt with sin a little bit and get away with it. But again, that's not the language of faith, is it? That's actually the language of unbelief. That's not the language of love and thankfulness. That's the language of envy and covetousness, which is exactly what the Tenth Commandment tells us we're not allowed to do. So we have to remember that in his fatherly love, God does sometimes chastise his children. He sometimes does discipline us. God sends judgment on those who persist in their own way. David experienced the consequences of his own sin. Nathan said to him, the sword will not depart from your house. And that did happen. Peter experienced it too. And at the very least, if you persist in sin, your life will not be a happy life. And at the very worst, God will sometimes shake up your life. That's what happened to Peter. It's happened to Samson. It's what happened to the people of Israel. Just read through the book of Judges. Sometimes God has to shake us up so that we learn what kind of a God we're dealing with and that we learn to appreciate the one who called us to be his children. And maybe you're still thinking, well, we, we, we still can't do it. Even the holiest people fail, and you're right, you can't do it. Not on your own. 
And yet, by God's grace, the difference between a true believer and a religious person, like we heard this morning, the difference is evident. By God's grace, people like David and Peter and Abraham, and they grew in faith and they continue to grow in faith. Think about all the names that you read about in, in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter that's sometimes called the, the list of the heroes of faith. All those saints, they also lived with weaknesses, yet they lived by faith. And it is true, believers are being renewed more and more after the image of God. By His Holy Spirit, they do begin to live not only according to some, but according to all of God's commandments. So keep in mind, congregation, that just as your righteousness... Your legal standing before God is a gift of grace. So also your sanctification is a gift of grace. God makes you alive in Christ. But the renewal of your life, your sanctification, is also a gift of grace. And while you receive your legal standing passively, you can't do anything about it. God involves you in the renewal of your life. He calls you to be actively participating in your sanctification. And yet, it is a gift. The Lord promises to renew your life after the image of Christ, but He wants you to put in the effort too. You receive His Spirit. You receive the gift of faith. You receive His Word. God makes you willing and able to serve and love Him. But at the same time, He calls you to serve and love Him. He calls you to use these gifts that he gives you. And when you do that, relying through prayer on the Holy Spirit, you will receive what he has promised. And in this life, that is increased holiness, and in the end, perfection. You receive it as a gift of grace. And so God calls us to a life of prayer and good works because he wants us to participate in our own sanctification. The way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is yours already, your own salvation. It's already been given to you, but work it out with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to to his good pleasure. It's all a gift of grace, but by his grace he also calls you to participation. And that gives us every reason for eternal hope, congregation. We confess the Lord demands a pure heart from his children. We know that in this life we will not attain that goal, but someday we will. Someday we will be able to keep God's law perfectly But let's not allow that to to make us dejected on this side of the grave or on this side of Christ's return on the clouds of heaven. By giving us his law, the Lord teaches us to find our refuge and safety in the cross of Jesus Christ. So then let us seek our refuge there. Seek your refuge where that cross is, where it's proclaimed. Seek your refuge where the gospel sounds is, is sounded clearly and purely because that's what gives security.
So let's be thankful that God maintains his law. Because by giving us that law, he shows us that he's not giving up on his work. And he's not giving up on the purity of his people. He wants our perfection and our obedience. But he is the one who is ultimately making that happen. And he is working toward that goal in your life, through his word and through his Holy Spirit. And so, let's use the gifts that we've been given, his word, his law, and prayer, and let's continue to rely on him for the life that he calls us to live. Amen.